Dave's Psych Lectures, part of the Thunderbird 6 Podcasting Network. And in fact, if you're uh, in psychology, you'll end up taking the the fourth-year class, uh, the history of psychology, and you'll learn a whole lot more about that. But I think history is a good thing in knowing about it. Um, What just happened there? Well, that can't be good. That's funny. Oh, that's really weird. Let's see what happens when I do that. It's all effed up. That's funny. It looks fine there. Let's see if it happens on the next slide, too. That looks okay, right? Okay, I'm going to tell you what it says there. (laughs) I'm using both plugs, but yes, I'm just going to do this. Indeed. Um, Okay, what that says, I don't know why it's screwed up like that. I think it's because this. Projector doesn't do 16 million properly. That's Aristotle. You can see that. Does it make that? It's an actual photo of a statue of Aristotle. Um, these guys, the ancient Greeks, were really interested in experience, in knowledge, in theory of knowledge, in epistemology, all that. How do you Learn something. This was something that was really important to them. There's all kinds of things. I mean, these guys were amazing. You gotta understand, there was no science, there wasn't no, people had just stopped living as hunter-gatherers. So they're just starting to figure stuff out. So that's like Aristotle played all these guys. They're figuring things out from first principles. So we can sit here and laugh at them today, but we should also be amazed at the things that they get sort of right. And as I said, what it says there, um, as is in the case in all the sciences, investigations early on in the learning were done by philosophers. And who better to start with than Aristotle? Um, he talked about when you're going to learn something, when you're going to put two, right, about ideas in it, when you're going to put two ideas together, and he recognized that you're putting ideas together, that that's part of what learning is, that contiguity was important. Okay? And this is both spatial and temporal contiguity. Spatial contiguity means if you see two things in the same place often enough, you start to associate them. Okay? That's what spatial contiguity is. Temporal contiguity is when two things occur together, you start to put them together, you associate them together, your mind does that. Okay? So spatial and temporal contiguity. These are things, in fact, just even intuitively. And again, he's doing this intuitively. He was, there was no science. He wasn't doing experiments. He was thinking this through. And he was saying that both spatial and temporal contiguity are important. And I think today we would say the same thing. That when two things happen together in the same time in the same place, we tend to associate them. We being humans, we being rats. 
Um, he also talked about the importance of similarity. So if two stimuli, which is probably a Greek word, sounds like stimulus, stimuli, that's Latin actually. Um, if two stimuli are put to, uh, are, are similar, they're more likely to be, to be associated together. Two stimuli are similar, they're more likely to be associated. That makes a lot of intuitive sense. He also, though, as if, when you read some of this old philosophy stuff, it's actually kind of funny how they hedge their bets a lot of the times. Because he also said it was important that things were different. So things that are different are, are associated. So things are either the same or they're different. Associated. Now the thing is, in some respects, he's got a point. Things that are noticeable and difference is noticeable, right? If I give you a list of words, and the list is red, green, blue, yellow, chair, gray. You're more likely to remember the word chair than any of them, because it's different. It's called the, there's an actually has a name, it's called the Von Restorf effect, and we'll talk about that in the memory class. But the point is, he was saying that similarity is important, and so is difference. So he would say we're going to associate all those colors, plus we'll associate those colors with chair, because they're different. So he's sort of hedging. He's sort of hedging. But again, something that's different is surprising, and surprising things are learned about. When things are different than you expect, that's when you learn something. That's when you notice it, it's when you notice it right? When things are ordinary. So that's, you know, pretty impressive for someone who was doing this completely from first principles. He had no previous research to base things on and doing it totally from argument. So we should give him some credit. Okay? Okay, uh, then what we'll do so then, here, here's the history. Then the Romans ruled the known world. Love the Romans, so I took Latin in school. Then the barbarians came. Just the background of most people in this room. And yada yada yada. And then along came the British empiricists. Yes, I've just yada 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 about 1,500 years of history. Maybe 2,000. Okay? So we get the Dark Ages, which actually weren't that dark. And then you've got the. And this is, this is all Western thought here. I am completely ignoring, because this is a Western tradition, this, this comes out of Russia. I'm ignoring what's happening in the Muslim world, where there was all kinds of great strides making in science. There really wasn't a Middle Ages in the Middle East. Well, Middle Ages, Middle East, but they didn't do this, so that's awesome. So, actually, great strides were making things like optics in the Middle East, Middle East, all kinds of things like that. Okay? But in Western Europe, people, you know, the Roman Empire falls, you end up with the Holy Roman Empire, which is neither holy nor Roman nor an empire, discuss. And you end up with, you know, the movie The Name of the Rose, right? Sean Connery. He's a spiritually dangerous book, Sassel. You should all watch that watch that movie, it's awesome. Anything with Sean Connery. I heard a version of him, you know the Beatles song where places I remember, blah, blah, blah. I heard a version of him just saying, the places I remember. And it was awesome. <laughs> like, I'll buy that album. 
And Sean Connery talking Beatles songs is great. Help, I need somebody. I was younger, so much younger than today. Anyway, so we get into like the 1500s, 1600s, that's what we're talking about here. So we went from the 1500s, 1600s, so yeah, we're okay. I had the idea 3,000 years of history. So the British empiricists, these guys were interested in a lot of things, and one of the key things they were, that, that they said is sort of, uh, I guess they're, their starting point was that knowledge was based on experience. And no knowledge, like all of it. All knowledge is based on experience. This is the 1500s and 1600s in the UK. Well, in England. It wasn't really called the UK until 1707. There were some Scots that also had Hobbes and Locke actually had the E in the end are probably the best examples here of two people that were the big guys in these fields. You've got to also understand something about these people. But philosophers in general, they were not just doing that's epistemology for your right? But they were also doing political philosophy, right? All that kind of stuff too. So they weren't just doing where does knowledge come from? Where does learning work? They were also doing like, and how should government work? Right? And doing it very well, doing it respectfully. It's not like me and, and Paul Dupuis complaining upstairs. That doesn't count. Locke talked about the blank paper, um, which is actually what he said. It was translated, it's interesting, Locke wrote mostly in English, um, but it was translated into Latin because Latin was the language of learning. Right? So people translated into Latin, they got tabula rasa, which means blank slate. There really wasn't a word in Latin for paper because they didn't have paper. So people used the word slate, right? So the idea is that your mind, your learning, right? Everything you know is a blank slate to your mind. And then experience writes on it. Experience writes on it. Now, that actually fits really nicely with our good old bleeding heart Western liberal ideas, doesn't it? Everybody's equal. It's just your background. It's just under your, it's under background of who your parents are. It's the background of the environment you get. That's what makes you who you are. Nothing else. Any man can be president. It fits beautifully with that, doesn't it? Really, really nicely. And you've got to understand, at the time, when Locke and Hobbes were saying things like this, this was literally revolutionary. And I say literally because there was a revolution in it. This is literally revolutionary. If you have a coin, who's a coin? Any coin? Any Canadian coin? What's a Canadian coin? No one carries cash anymore except any, apparently. I'm a student. Hmm? I'm a student. Yeah, exactly. Well, I'm a professor. I only have a bank card. Okay, what's it say on the... Um, the author, so part with the queen on it. What's it say on it? DG. DG Regina. Yeah, Elizabeth II, DG Regina, which means in Latin, it's Regina's queen. DG stands for uh, Dea Gratia. Queen by the grace of God. That's what that means. Kings and queens got their 
and governments in general back then, got their power because God said they were the king or the queen. It's the divine way of kings, right? That's where they got their power from. No one elected them. It's the divine right of kings. They must be special if God picked them. Everybody isn't equal. This is the standard view. Some people are special, so special that God picks them to run countries. And oddly enough, get them their families in perpetuity. Their families are picked to run countries. And these guys are saying, well, really, well, the way it actually works is what says, that, um, of course, experience um, rights on a blank slate, and all people there in my extension are equal at birth. Is that something thought? That's really radical. That's literally radical. Today it doesn't sound like it, but it's in. So, with the the, um, the experience writing on your mind. Yeah. So if you weren't exposed to something, you had no knowledge of it. That's so there was like a lot of really ignorant people. Well, I mean, that would be what they would say, yeah. And that the, the only reason that the king um, is the king isn't because God picked him. See, that's the extension. It isn't necessarily because God picked him. It's because he's rich and he's got money and he's had a pretty good experience and he's also got an army and a navy. Right? By the way, these guys weren't like atheists or anything. They were totally religious guys. Right? So it wasn't like they were saying there's no God. And they, in fact, if you ask Locke and Hobbes if they were here today, first of all, they'd be amazed at the glowing screen and the candleless lights. But then, if you ask them, does God take the king? They'd probably go, well, yeah, clearly. I'm sure they would say that. But they would probably also say that doesn't mean that the king gets the is any better than anybody else. Right? This would be again after they get over the shock of what, what an iPhone was. Or just a phone. <laughs> you know. <laughs> so that is pretty radical, pretty radical notion. And in fact, again, it fits very nicely. You can see why this is some of the basis of Western thought. Today, of Western political philosophy, that's that it actually fits me very beautifully with the idea that we're all equal. And I don't mean we're all equal, equal rights. I, you know, I mean like we're all actually equal at birth, and it's all based on your experience. Now, there are big rivals in these sort of philosophical debates about knowledge, or what are called the nativists. Okay? So the nativists were people like, that's Immanuel Kant, or Kant, depends on how to pronounce that. When I took philosophy, I pronounced Kant because it's really hard to understand things he writes or wrote. And that's not just because it's translated from German. So that's Kant. And there's Descartes. <laughs> um, Descartes thought the mind and the body were separate things. And in fact, this is a big step that he made. Because by saying the mind and body are separate, and that then says we can study the mind. Right? Can't believe that we were born with natural concepts like space and time. We, in fact, I don't think would argue anything about Kant today. That seems completely and utterly sensible. A sense of time and a sense of space probably are built in. Uh, this notion became more popular 
with data showing it in the last 20, 30 years. Descartes thought that the mind and body were separate, and, the, and, and that went to having a soul, right? And the funny thing is, when you read Descartes, and you gotta really read it in French, because it, it's a little, except it's kind of weird archaic French, but if you read it in French, and he, when he talks about soul, it seems like half the time he actually means your immortal soul that goes to heaven. And the other half the time, I think he actually means your mind. And it's really hard to pull them apart. And again, this wasn't a guy who said, you know, this is a very, these are deeply religious guys, you've got to understand that too. Because that's the way everyone was back then. This is later than But Descartes says we have a separate mind and body, and therefore we can study the mind. So some people call Descartes the father of psychology. Um, I call him the father of a misconception that the mind and body are separate. Because, <laughs> I mean, Descartes, look, no one, in, in, in 200 years, nobody's going to show a picture of a slide of me and say, well, David Broadback thought this. So, you know, I'm giving some credit. Unless I do something really, really bad. And I, I, you know, I don't see myself doing anything really, really bad. So Descartes often thought he was almost the father of psychology and neuroscience in some respects. And I, I, that bugs me. Because he said that's something that's fundamentally incorrect, that the mind and body are separate. Um, Kant, I have a lot more, you don't hear a lot about him, nearly as much, but the idea that he said that we have innate concepts like space and time, I love that. I think that's wonderful. And think about how that goes back to the idea of spatial and temporal contiguity from Aristotle. So they kind of fit together. It's pretty cool. Okay? So this was sort of, and again, this is over hundreds of years, these, these, these debates, okay? Um, I don't think this is easy to understand. If you, even if you do understand German, read in German. Uh, I'm not saying necessarily I don't read in German. I, I know German words like Luftwaffe, Blitzkrieg, you know, war movie German, Hogan's Heroes German. Hogan! No one has ever escaped from Skylake 13? Anybody actually seen Hogan's Heroes? Not that they have. It's good. It's good. It's good to know. That whole DVD box set. I <laughs> love that. I could just sit here and talk for an hour. I won't, but I could. Um, but Kant, I think, is, is much more important today than Descartes is. These guys, again, did other stuff. In his spare time, he invented, you know, Cartesian coordinates, X, Y, Z, you know, the coordinate system for doing graphs. So when you're doing that kind of stuff, in math and in statistics, you can play with Descartes. But good on him for inventing that. Uh, Kant did a lot of stuff on moral philosophy. They both, however, when you see them, you see these paintings, they both look like they're looking at you like you're an idiot, okay? They just do it with different accents. Okay? He's like, what do you look at the stuff that I've said? And he's just looking at you like, good away. Yeah. Okay. So that's the big, sort of the big philosophy for a long time, which is, are there things built in? And, and Descartes says there's stuff built in because he says you've got a mind, and that's what makes you special, and a soul makes you special. Um, Kant is a little more specific and says we have concepts, innate concepts like space and time. And then you've got associationists or empiricists, and we see that these guys were like saying, no, it's all based on experience. <coughs> and for a long time in psychology, 
that was thought of as, as the way it was. <coughs> One of the people that came out One guy named Brown uh, came up with what he called the Rules of Association. He's a Scot. And this is from empiricist writings that he had, he had read. He sort of compiled this stuff and said, these are the rules of association. These are the rules of association. Okay. He said, you have, first of all, you have sensations and you have ideas. A sensation is... You know, when something impinges on your sensory system, it can be a sound, like whatever. And that is converted into an idea. Yesterday, or two days ago, I talked about the idea of simple ideas, something like the color red. Well, there's the wavelength of light. Now, by this time, they start to know this stuff. Now we're in the 1800s here, we have a wavelength of light, and we then represent it somehow as the color red. So simple sensations like the color red lead to simple ideas like the color red. Now, these simple ideas come to be associated through contiguity, through happening together, through coming together, into concepts. Okay. Make sense? This gets a little silly, a little more too much about it. The idea that concepts of two simple ideas are called complex ideas. Red triangle. Okay. Two complex ideas become duplex ideas. This is this is why you should start to avoid philosophy. So going and going, and everything together is everything. I win. Yeah, whatever. <laughs> you know. The point is that they're saying this is happening through contiguity. They're, they're saying this is happening through contiguity. That, that stuff is coming together because of space and time. Things being beside each other or beside each other in time, and they're being put together. Some of these rules are not that actually far off when we think of in modern learning theory that the concept formation. Near the end of the course, we'll talk about animal cognition. I'll talk about concept formation. And you'll see, in fact, that this is almost dead on with what the, the data we found. And these guys are doing this by sitting and thinking. They're not doing experiments. And when you think about concepts and you can, how you can break them down into their constituent parts. And that, uh, you might learn about that if you're from Michigan um, And again, this is not that far off. So we can sit here and say, yeah, whatever, but again, no one's going to talk about any of us in, in, in a couple of hundred years. Okay. So this guy, Thomas Brown, writes it all down, because that's right. So we've got a lot of Thomas Brown. I write it all down. So here are his rules. Now, these rules are actually kind of interesting, because these are very close to, to the way we think about learning today. He said the length of time is important. In other words, how many times, or for how long two things are put together. So the longer two stimuli are together in space or time, 
the better you're going to learn about them. Okay? He talked about the liveliness of something. And that just means how, how bright something is, how loud something is. Right? Today we call that stimulus intensity. He wanted to lively up himself. No reggae fans, nothing? Okay. So, and we say that today. In fact, when I eventually show you the restored alignment model of classical conditioning, there is a part in it that mentions, in fact, there's a parameter in that model that is about the intensity of the stimulus. And if it's about the intensity of the stimulus, that's the liveliness of it. The frequency of pairings, this makes sense. The more things are put together, the more time you think about, think about Pavlov. The more times you get the buzzer and the food, the more you learn. The more you know. The recency of pairings. Well, that makes sense as well, doesn't it? If something is more recent, you're more likely to remember it. It's more likely to have an effect on your behavior. This is good. The freedom from other pairings. Remember I talked about that stuff at the very beginning. Remember the first day and I said if we took an animal and it learned and we had a stimulus A, right? And then we always gave it food after A, so A plus. And we did that a whole bunch of times. And then we gave it A, B plus, and let's say A's a light and B's a, a tone. Right? Now we test it with A. What do we get? We actually get a response. We test it with B. We get nothing. Well, Brown would say that makes sense. Look, freedom from other parents. No, you've got other parents. A and the food. So B doesn't do anything. It doesn't predict anything. because you don't have freedom from other parents. <clears throat> the B doesn't predict anything. It's useless. Constitutional differences. No, this is not about the constant complaining we have in our country between provinces. This is about differences between individuals. Basically, some people, some animals, are going to learn better than others. Some are smarter than others. It's that simple. So it's going to be easier. It could be a sensory difference. There's all kinds of possibilities. Right? So there are many possibilities here. Um, learning ability, so we want to call that intelligence. We might want to talk about sensory ability. All these things are constitutional. All right. Questions about those principles? Oh, no, just a couple more. Emotional state. If you're upset by something, if you are sad, for example, or angry, you're much less likely to learn than if you're calm. Okay? That's kind of true. You also, frankly, will learn, you'll associate emotion with a stimulus thing, so be a bit careful there. Your general health, if you're not healthy, you can't learn. At this point, I think he's grasping it strong. So, 
Now, for the least nine of these principles, I'm running out of ideas. So you're with emotional speed, health, because he's Scottish, right? And that's how he talked, just like that. What about your prior habits? What else are you doing? Your prior habits, then perhaps and perhaps before we give you A plus. You had a whole series of times when I gave you C minus. Don't the rest of the class not excellent, that'd be fun. So prior habits, other things you've learned, in other words. That's kind of the flip side of uh, freedom from other parents, right? Okay. When you think about it, this is actually pretty amazing. This is pretty damn close to how we think about learning today. And I know you guys don't know a whole lot about it yet, but just think about the little bit that you know from intro psych, or some experience, if that helps you at all. Um, that's a pretty damn good list. That's very close. And just from your experience studying stuff for school, you know a lot of that stuff's true. Right? Think about it. Sometimes they ever take courses in two different disciplines, and in one discipline they say one thing, and the other one they tell you they're wrong? Yeah? Remember, first of all, I'm always right. Just <laughs> as an aside. But that happens, right? And then you get, you're trying to learn something, you go, yeah, but I thought that was like that, but then they said that's like that. I can't learn! <laughs> other parents. Right? This is what we often say in psychology, we're doing the academic advising. Take some biology. We're kind of similar people. We have similar ideas. We do things both with the science and all. It's hard to learn if you've already learned something else that's completely different. So if you're taught one thing throughout your whole life, and then someone comes along and says everything you know is wrong, it can be difficult to learn. When something's more intense, the liveliness of it, it's easier to learn. We can take that as the liveliness, we can take that as the intensity of the stimulus, we can also take that as how much you're paying attention to something. Right? If you attend to something more, that probably means you're, you're um, it, it's going to be just more intense because of how you're behaving. Excuse me. So these are actually pretty neat, because this is before there was even psychology. Psychology starts in 1879. Brown's doing this in the 1860s. I think it's the 1860s. Something like that. Questions about Brownian principles? Quickly learning how the accents to do. I should have been Scottish. I should have made you sound like Sean Connery. John Connery, the only guy you will, you will buy acting as a Lithuanian captain in the Russian Navy with a Scottish accent, right? Oh, you go, yeah, I got that, that's good. Captain Marco Reyes. One of my computers is named Reyes. Love that movie. Love it, love it, love it. They're afraid of our fleet, you should be. There's no idea what's one chance to play. We should just watch Hunter and October. Screw this course. We're just going to watch that movie over and over and over all bees. What do you say? Okay, cool. Yes, it is. Most people are like, yeah, bee. That's great. 73, though. Like, not a high bee. No, see. Okay. Finally, there's actual psychology. Herman Eddinghouse comes along. 
And he's like, these are all pretty interesting ideas, but none of them have been tested. Because he's German again, I'm doing the normal my German accent. Actually, everything seems like he's been much more of a mild-mannered sort. There he is. He also looks like he's got a beard of bees on or something. <laughs> <laughs> you, know, you see those guys on like, uh, I don't know, Mythbusters or something. There's you know, Ripley's Believe Ripley's Believe It or Not, those kind of shows. I'm now going to wear a beard of bees. <laughs> Where do you go to school to learn that? You know, is that a community college thing? Is that, is that, is that a trade to learn? Other universities with their degrees in beard being? <laughs> Maybe he didn't have a mouth. Maybe he was born without a mouth and he did that Or maybe he Photoshop. I don't know he had Photoshop back then, right? Maybe he coloring stuff in the pen. But it's amazing. I mean, of course, people used to sit. This is an old picture. This is a guy from the 1880s. This guy sat still for like probably three minutes during the explosion. Then he looked at the, the picture and went, Yeah, this is a good picture of me. It's like, you can't see my mouth at all. That's great. You know. You've really captured my, 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 my beard. So, <laughs> so Q Herman Ebbinghouse, here he comes, he's going to test some of these theories, these, these rules. And that's good for Herman, because, you know, we'd be screwed without him. He, a lot of people talk about who's the father of learning, who's the father of cognitive psychology, both of them. He's both, I think. Before Pavlov and before, he's just after, like, Voigt starts psychology. And so it's strange, because both behaviorists, really hardcore behaviorists, you don't believe in any worry about the contents of the mind, and cognitive psychologists claim him as their own guy. They both say he's the first guy of our kind, except that they have radically different ideas. It's kind of cool. Uh, but he is the first guy that tests these rules. Okay. Look, I think I you speak German to what Ebbing House means, because house means house. Because you know German is only eight words, they just put it together in the long compound. So he tested himself, tested himself, tested, trying to remember nonsense syllables. This is pretty smart. Today we wouldn't do this. Uh, but what Ebbinghaus said, he said, well, I don't want to try to remember actual German words because that could bias my, my memory. I'm going to remember lists of consonant, vowel, consonant, trigrams. So just, I don't know, <coughs> B-A-P. I don't know, maybe that does mean something in German. It seems way too short for a German word. You know, it would be Bappenheimer if it was German. But just Bapp. Just, um, L-O-R, Lore. Well, I don't know, but German and English, but that sounds a little bit too much like Lohr, L-O-R-E. But he's just making up nonsense syllables. You know what we do today? We actually, um, people publish the frequency of how often, like, English words in, in writing, and we just use words of equal frequency. It's a lot easier to do. But I think this is a very good piece of control work he did, so we gotta like that. So he studies himself. He gives himself lists of these constant constant trigrams, and he, he learns them to the point where he's perfect. Ebbinghaus apparently had a lot of free time. How many of the sound proteins ready? I'm going to still remember my list of fonts of our concept trigrams. I cannot come to talk to you right now with your dinner. I was just Herman and his wife. I was doing a whole bit there. 
So, one of the neat things he found was savings, which is something we talked about today. And we'll, uh, if we do end up, I don't get the habituation today, but when we do, you'll even see it shows up there. What he found is he'd learn a list, and he'd learn it until he was, he was perfectly learned, and then he'd move to a new list. And when he did this, after a while, he'd go back to an old list. And he'd have to learn it again, except he'd learn it much more quickly the second time. <coughs> this is true, as you know, in learning almost anything, right? I haven't skated probably in three years. But if I put a pair of skates on, I know I can skate. For about three strides, I'll be just a little bit shaky and then I'll be fine. Right? I haven't thrown a curveball in 20 odd years. It's my baseball friends. I can throw a curveball. Hopefully, my elbow feels right now, and I could. But the first few times I threw it, I don't think it'd break. And eventually, assuming I had any velocity left, the ball would break. Right? You remember how to do these things even if you, for, you feel like you've forgotten them. This is the same thing with math. Right? Remember, remember some of you guys, you probably haven't taken math in a very long time. You walked into 2126 in the stats class and went, oh, right, pluses and takeaways. I haven't done that in a while. <laughs> yes. But, and it's slow at first, and then Dwayne's up there rambling on about things in Newfoundland and on, on now and then telling you some rules. I'm just also hoping he's saying. <laughs> but you know, you tell yourself and you go, what? How did you know? I don't understand that part. And you feel kind of silly because it's like, I think we learned that in grade eight. <laughs> I think you cross multiplied, but it, that seems like magic. <laughs> and then it came to you, you go, oh, wait, I remember how to do that. Then it comes back to you. So he found exactly that. Notice how none of those rules talked about that. None of Brown's Rules of Association said learning something would be easy if you've already learned it before and forgotten it. So that's a pretty cool result. And this is true again if it's a, a physical sort of motor learning, throwing a curveball, riding a bike, uh, but it's also true when you're learning a list of words or when you're doing complex things like, like say, math. He found that repetition was really important. So that goes along with Brown's Rules, right? The more I repeat this list, the better I learn. Okay. This shouldn't surprise. This didn't surprise him. This was pretty much known by most everyone. He discovered the classic forgetting curve. The forgetting curve, which looks like this, we go over time. So time's down here. And this would be, uh, let's call it percent correct. And it looks like this. It approaches zero. Right? So you forget the most early on, maybe you're less and less and less and less because you have less to forget, actually. Right? He discovered that. We still talk about forgetting curves today. And then that's what they look. You, change, you tweak the parameters, but that's what they look like. He found that contiguity was important. Hey, didn't Aristotle say that? Now, he was doing continuity in time, not in space. But it was one of these cases, and think about this. When you're trying to remember the alphabet, you just put something in alphabetical order, and then you go to something, you see the EFGH, you go, okay. You do that, don't you? Don't say you don't. We all do. Right? You have to remember the alphabet. So it's like, what comes after R? You might have to like, G, 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 R, S. 
right? Nothing wrong with that, you do that all the time. Because in R, they're S. So contiguity, things coming together, happening together. He did find out, however, that reversal was detrimental. So it wasn't just contiguity, it was contingency. So then he tried to do his list backwards. His list of constant L constant trigrams. He could do it, but it was really, really hard. Going backwards is hard. Think about that again using the alphabet example. You can say the alphabet to yourself, right? A, B, C, D, E, F, G, H, G, K, L, P, Q, R, S, Q, V, W, X, Y, Z. That's easy. Now I'm moving backwards. Z, Y, X, W, U. I just actually went forward in my head all the way up to U. Oh, sorry, I screwed up. It's V. So it's V, U, T, S, R, Q, P, oh, R. N, M, L, K, J, L, H, H, E, F, G. I forgot G. Yeah, see, you would never forget G going forward. It wouldn't happen. I would never forget V going forward. It's hard to do. I can say the whole alphabet in a couple of seconds. Backwards, it's going to take me upwards of a minute. And I'm going to make mistakes, which I might catch, I might not. And how am I doing it? Actually, like I said, I got the W, and I went, I used to change your pencil, pick your rest, and V. <laughs> That's how a lot of people end up doing it. Because the reversal, you're not learning what happened in the past. Think about this from a biological perspective, from a functional perspective. Predicting the past is useless. Predicting the future, however, has a lot of function. It's really useful. You can see how that would be selected for, right? In, 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 in structural evolution. It's like, let's predict the future. It's short-term prediction, but it's prediction nonetheless. So the idea that reversal was detrimental, this blew the lid off of some of these principles of, of association, the idea that it's just contiguity. It's actually not just contiguity, it's also contingency. One thing is contingent on another. And we find this in learning. You know what's really hard to teach an animal? Give it food, then give it the buzzer. Then give it the buzzer, what's it learned? Well, it doesn't salivate. It learns that it's good. it learns that there's no food because it learns that the buzzer is the buzzer means food's over. It's hard to learn the other way. It's hard to learn backwards, which makes a whole great deal of biological sense. Okay. Questions about that? Everything else was really cool. I mean, you got to give him a lot of credit. This was how you were experiments for first principles. If you take a look at the book by William James, Principles of Psychology, which is the first <coughs> real textbook in psychology, he can't cite very many people because psychology had started 11 years earlier. So 1879, when he starts his lab, 1890, Principles is published. I swear, half the, half the citations are to Evans. Pretty important guy in this from psychology. So eventually the ball was sort of picked up by guys like Skinner and Thorndike and Watson, who we'll eventually talk about. You know, Skinner, of course, really in historical order, so Thorndike, Watson, Skinner, really. But these are guys that looked at these rules of association, looked at Ebbinghaus's results, etc., looked at also things that were influenced by Paolo, and they talked about how they 
we owe a great deal of our modern ideas of learning to the, to, the, to the notions of the British empiricists, to the rules of association that Brown came up with. And I think almost, that's hard to say more because without those ideas that Ebbinghaus would really have tested them, but we owe a great deal of Ebbinghaus because he finally didn't use his science. Right. So these are important guys. Questions about that, about the history stuff? Before we move on to innate behavior and such. Okay. So that's the end of history. <laughs> All right. So let's talk about innate behaviors and habituation. Simplest kind of stuff we can talk about. And we're talking about innate behavior. You might wonder why. What's that with learning? Because innate means stuff that's not learned, doesn't it? Well, learning involves a lot of innate behavior. Right? So the idea, you think about Pavlov, you think about the buzzer and the food in the mouth. Well, when that food goes in the mouth, the animal salivates, doesn't it? Well, a salivary reflex is innate. You're built that way. Right? If I put food in your mouth, you will salivate. And that happens when you're very small. You're built that way. It's a reflex. Right? There's a, re there's a, re a reason Pavlov's book is called Conditioned Reflexes. Because he's talking about hooking up reflexes. So a lot of learning involves innate behavior. Now, of course, you can also say, well, the learning mechanisms are in there, etc. So I mean, you can put all that together if you want. Many of the rules of innate behavior are similar to the rules of learning. We're going to look at some of these things. It also gives, I think, some perspective. We get the idea that everything is learning. That the Hobbesian idea of the blank slate, the idea that all all learning or that all behavior is learning. Not everything's learned. Some things we just do. Nobody actually taught you to walk, unless you've been in an accident and you rehab and all that. Nobody here, I don't think, would do that. And if you did, you're covering it up well and good on you. But you just walked one day. No one taught you to walk. There's a program. It's built in. No one taught you to see. You just do it. And well, and then there are other you know things that are learned, but they use the innate mechanisms a whole lot. Like you think about something like human language. Yeah, you learn a language clearly. But when it's one of your mother tongues, when you learn it when you're like between the age of like five or six, you just learn it by being around people talking that way. You don't sit down with your kids and give them language classes. You don't have to. They just it just happens. But that's just the language, that's not everything else. So there you have an innate system, the language learning system, that unless something goes wrong, you just learn language. Doesn't matter if you're learning English or French or Klingon. So, let's think about some very simple behavior here. 
And let's think about it. From a, what? 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 What's funny? Now I want to know. Is it good? Is it about me? What happened to me? Seven point something degrees Celsius. Let's go with that. <coughs> and we have effectors. Those are things that this is all theoretical, okay? But the notion here is you have this would be like neural connections um, that control the variable and that's heat, and then it feeds back, right? So you, you, your, your body's like. I'm warmer, I'm cold, or too warm, I'm too cool. That compares it to the set point, and then you go back and say, do we want to lose heat? Well, we can both dilate our blood vessels, we can sweat. If we're not humans, we can pant. Right? Do we want to gain heat? That's constriction, shivering. Uh, your hair can stand on end, right? So, how do we actually wire, you know, you got some goosebumps? The feedback mechanism here can be positive or negative or both. Now, the positive would be gaining heat, negative would be losing heat. Thermoregulation in humans tends to be both, is both. And the behavior isn't all that interesting. Shivering isn't really interesting behavior. There are cases, though, if you can take a look at um, rabbits, baby rabbits. They can't have fevers. There's just they don't have a system. They have a fever. Fevers are actually usually good things. It's your body heating up enough to kill what's inside of it that's hurting you. The problem with um, baby rabbits is they can't get fevers. So if they get sick, they could die. But you know what they do instead of getting a fever? They go to where it's warm. Great experiment. You inject um, rabbits with uh, influenza, baby rabbits. You give them the flu. And then watch what they do, and they all just congregate under a heat wave. And they normally wouldn't do that. It's called a behavioral fever. Okay. Yeah, it's very cool. Right? It's published in science. They did in science school. So that's interesting behavior, though it's not learned. But it's certainly useful. Right? simple system of thermoregulation, which in us is usually involved with like you know, sweating or dilation or shivering, etc. We can talk about reflexes as well. These are stereotypic responses to a stimulus. The connection here is going to be a sensory connection, to an interneuron connection, to a motor connection. Very simple kind of set of systems, very simple system. You can get really complex behavior out of simple connections in relatively simple animals. Um, you can take a look at digger wasps 
And they're called digger wasps because they, they dig holes in sand. Okay? And the funny thing is, they dig with their front legs and then with their middle legs and back legs push the dirt out of the hole. And they do that just until they're covered. They don't go any further. That's pretty complicated behavior. Right? But what they're doing is they're detecting heat and humidity. And they keep digging till the humidity changes and goes up. They keep digging till the temperature goes down. That's not learned. And it looks it's really beautiful complicated behavior. <coughs> But all they're doing is the same thing that happens when you hit your knee and your leg goes up. It's a reflex. It gets hot out in the desert, they start digging into, into, into the sand. It's just what they do. But that looks pretty complicated. But it's stereotypical. When you look at it, every animal does, every digger wasp does this the same way. Unless it's doing it wrong. Then it doesn't last very long. And its back end gets cooked if it doesn't take far enough. <coughs> there are mites that burrow into wasp nervous systems, which is pretty awesome and a little alien y. I mean, like the series of movies Alien. They actually burrow into the wasp's nervous system and they'll make a wasp hang out, not go back to a nest. They'll make it just stand around near a leaf until it dies. Then these little guys all burst out of the wasp and they're on a leaf and they can eat the leaf. That's just gross. No, it's awesome. <laughs> because they actually make a very specific lesion in the nervous system to make it not go home and to make it go sit on a kind of tree that these mice like. Nature's awesome. I mean, literally awesome. You should be in awe of that. And that's all just reflexes. That's a reflex, and that, 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 that mite is hooked up that way. And then what it's doing is taking advantage of how the wasp is hooked up. And anything that kills wasps, I am for. I hate wasps. Multiple stinging social insects. So Don't trust mites, them. Do these mites only um, invade wasps? Yeah, only a certain species of wasp. They go right to the right part of the nervous system. There's a few cases like that. There's also caterpillars that do this to uh, wasps as well. What they're doing is they're doing little neuroscience experiments, etc. They've been over hundreds of millions of years, and they've really got it down. I just go to this little ganglion and kill it. It's too bad they can't copy it. Oh, they can't write it down? Well, we can, so we get publications. But you don't put the, you don't put the mites as first author. It's not a good thing to see here. And of course, those of you that know me, this was coming, I'm going to talk about moths and bats, because it's the greatest thing in the history of science. It actually is as good as my favorite thing. Okay, now, that's a ductoid moth. And its ear has two neurons, basically. It has the A1 neuron and the A2 neuron. Who here has not heard me talk about moths and bats? I know some of you have, because I don't have very Awesome. You'll enjoy this. And if you don't, there's something wrong with you because it's exciting. So, we've got A1 and A2. This is kind of how it works. 
we pull this dependent memory, and the moths ears are in its thorax. And the air sacs here. And this dependent memory, not like how our ear works, it, it vibrates with air pressure changes. And then it has these two cells in one and two. Okay? They're not frequency sets. So they don't, you're, you have a whole lot of sensory neurons in your ear that are, that are frequency sensitive. That's why you can tell there's high sounds and low sounds. Right? Mods can't. Mods, mods, if they were judges on American Idol, wouldn't say you're a little pitchy, dude. They'd never done Which is, I think, what they always say if they don't have anything to say. I don't know, that's social stuff. I literally haven't watched it in like eight years. I stopped being interested in about eight or nine years ago. Just tell me. I think there's more than two judges. Okay. Okay. So here's a model of how it works, not that important. Here's a physiological model. We have a muscle hooked up to a ear. Directly hooked up. Okay? So what happens here is this is great work that was done by a guy named Rader, R-O-E-D-E-R. Um, he takes the A1 receptor, puts a microelectrode across it, and sends out a sound, and he finds that it's responsive to, send, to, to intensity. That's how high this graph is here. The higher it is, the louder it is. Okay? And you can see that the A1 fires, look, it's firing in proportion to intensity. The more intensity is, the more the cell fires. So that means the bat's closer, because bats are what hunts moths. Bats hunt moths. These moths, if they, you know, if they don't learn how to get away, or not learn, if they don't just get away from bats, they die. They become part of the all-you-can-eat moth buffet. A2 doesn't fire at all until things get really loud. And by the way, frequency doesn't matter. Frequency doesn't matter. But there is a lower limit of frequency where the moth can't hear. And that lower limit is at about 100,000 hertz. <coughs> your upper limit, your upper limit is 20,000. And in fact, none of you have hearing at 20,000. There's no way you can do it. You live in Western industrialized society. There's no way you hear that high anymore. Maybe you probably can't hear it above like 12, 13,000 hertz. Right? There's hardly any sound or anything at that range anyway. This is why, in fact, that technology has been developed to keep teenagers away from fronts of stores, which are just really high-pitched sounds around 18,000 hertz. Play them really loud. Most people don't notice them, but it keeps teenagers away because there's this horrible sound. It seems wrong. In fact, I think it probably is wrong. But it's kind of cool. But it's like one of those Star Trek sounds, right? It gets that loud noise, and then Captain Kirk does this. <laughs> and every other human collapses. Somehow it doesn't affect Spock because of the way his ears are pointy. And then eventually Kirk just wheels his way ahead. Get to me. Oh, stop.
10,000, that's a loss can't get below 100,000. And guess what else sends out sounds at that level? That would be your bats. They send that sounds around over 100,000 hertz. They're, they use sonar, right? They use sonar to detect their prey. And they are so good at it that they can actually detect where a fly is in a completely dark room that's flying around and they can, they can catch it while well, they're flying and eat it. You might think, well, that's pretty impressive. Well, it, you can also do it if you string up a fishing line in the, in the room where the bats are. It's completely dark so for obstacles. And the bats don't hit the fishing line because they send out these sonar pulses, right? And it bounces back to their ears and they know where stuff is. Bats can paint a picture with sound that is as detailed in acuity as the picture we get with our eyes. Okay? Pretty impressive. Bats can discriminate sounds, they have to discriminate how quickly it comes back, right? How quickly the echo comes back. They can do it at 1.0 times 10 to the negative 9 seconds. That, that kind of time difference. So they send out these sonar pings. If they want to ping you, they want to ping only. And they detect where these, well, in this case, would be moths, but they can also detect flies. That work was actually originally done, by the way, at, at York University in Toronto, where they detect literally in a completely darkened room. Very impressive. You think moths are screwed? Well, they better have a pretty good defense system. So, louder the noise, the it's closer to the moth, louder the sound. Nothing happening, no firing, no firing, crazy fire. It also, so if A2 fires, it's got to be very close. That means the moth is, or the bat rather, is right next to me. Note that A2 is, or A1 rather, is also sensitive to pulses of sound, not to continuous sound. Bats don't send out continuous sound, they send out pulses. The moth's ear is a bat detector, that's all it is. Right? It sounds like something in the early, the late 60s version of Batman that he had in his utility belt. Give me the bat detector, Robin! Adam West. <laughs> Who's now on, like, Family Guy, which is the greatest thing in the world. He's like a thousand years old. <clears throat> Holy mother, Bob, that So, lots of bats. Here we go. A1 fires because the moth, because the, the, the moth is uh, close to a bat on that side, the wing flaps. The moth's course corrects to 180 degrees away from the, from the bat. And it's going to only beat the wings at an equal speed when it's turned away enough that the sounds are hitting at exactly the same intensity at both ears. Right? Because if it's louder here, he just keeps turning. That leaves his wings, <coughs> his wings faster. There's also another neuron that I mentioned called B. E is a feedback mechanism that detects if the map, if the, if the, if the moth's wings are down or up. Okay? And when it's down, it means it's covering the ear. And when it's up, it means it's open. 
That now can detect is the bat above me or below me. I am now in 360 degrees of freedom of space, up down, left, right, back, forth, able to detect where a predator is. What A2 does is it turns off inhibition in the nervous system. That's all it does. The moth, it's so close, it's so close, right beside it, that the moth is, is, is getting a little more bats, right beside it. It just turns off all inhibition. It's the idea, you know the idea of if you cut a chicken's head off, it still runs around? Or if, and I know the guys in the room have done this when they were younger, if you take a daddy long legs and just rip its leg off, because that's what little boys do, the leg still keeps moving. So the guys went, <laughs> the girls thinking, they're pigs and idiots. Yeah. Or you take the wings off a fly and the wings kind of flutter a little bit. Yeah. All the guys have done this because there are neurons that are still firing, and there is no inhibition from the central nervous system saying, "Don't do that." Right? A lot of what a moth central nervous system and our central nervous system is doing is inhibition. Right? There's always part of you that wants to do something that you don't even know, but it just gets inhibited. And this is why a lot of drugs make people make stupid decisions, for example. Alcohol, well, it's a, it's a, it, 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 for example, is a, a depressant. It brings you down. It also inhibits any inhibition. So you end up doing stupid things like, you know, you walk in, you bump into somebody. Normally, it's no big deal. You bump into somebody after five beers, and you always shoot problem. You want to go? <laughs> you know, you think things like, well, maybe I'll have sex with her. I mean, my wife will never know. Um, you think stupid things like that when you're drunk. Right? People do dumb things. That's just inhibition being turned off. Well, that's what E2 does. Well, that bat is so close, my dirty pool's detection system isn't working. I'm just going to start randomly flapping my wings in a completely unpredictable fashion and hope that I get away from this bat. Right? So it's a last-minute evasive maneuver system. And there's no pattern to it. It's not like... You know, this has a pattern, I'm going to go, I'm just going to fly away from the bat. But if the bat kind of figures that out somehow, it's never going to be able to predict what happens with A2. So it's a two-neuron error, and we can code where a predator is in three-dimensional space. That's cool. And it looks pretty cognitive, doesn't it? The animal, that, that moth's nervous system is in vector math, and it's doing it on the fly, literally. Right? It's constantly making calculations. Remember doing vector math, and you say, well, it's kind of hard. Huh? Now, if you took a moth and said, I'd like you to do some vector math, you wouldn't know what to do. He'd just be flying towards a light, so you'd kill it. <laughs> but his nervous system can do it. Looks really cognitive. Looks really complicated. It's not. Didn't learn this. Built this way. By the way, so I'm just thinking this is cool. This is the number of citations it gets every year. Still, this still gets cited in papers by people. <coughs> you know, and that's it. Goes back to 1957. So it's still getting excited. That's kind of neat. 
Stuff that's that old doesn't tend to get signed anymore, but something that cool, people still are talking about. So that's that's an interesting behavior. It it looks cognitive. It looks like it must have been learned, and it wasn't. Moths were built that way. Evolution's pretty cool. Okay. Now, the next kind of thing we can talk about here is what's called fixed action patterns. Now, a fixed action pattern is something that every member of the species does. Okay? Every member of the species does this. And there's no prior learning needed here. It just happens. We, we could call what, what, the, what the mods are doing a fixed action pattern. No, that's almost more like reflexes. The sequence here is rigid, so this is where really, I guess, the moth is. So it's a rigid sequence that once it's, let's go back, once it's started, it doesn't stop until the animal's done. Oftentimes there's a releasing stimulus, so you give the animal some stimulus, and it does that behavior. Think about a cat. Think about a house cat. Right, well, you probably have cats. If you give your cat a pillow, what does it do to the pillow? It needs the pillow. What do you think the function of needing a pillow is? What does it accomplish? No. Good guess. You know what it's doing? It's looking for a nipple. That's what kittens do when they go up to their mom. Oh, there it is, dinner. Um, behaviorally, most house cats aren't actually adult cats. They don't act like adults, they act like babies. Because we feed them every day. They don't have to hunt. None of that stuff. Right? I don't think you should let your cat hunt. I don't think you should put your cat outside. I don't think a cat should be able to kill birds. I think that's mean. Cats kill, in Canada, 20-odd million songbirds a year. Because people want it natural. What else is natural? Taking a shit just right in front of you. That's also natural. You do that? It's not natural. It's going to be natural if you don't do it. So don't give that natural crap. I only take mushrooms, man, because they're natural. So are the bears. Yeah, that's just ridiculous. Soylent green is natural, because it's made of people. Spoiler alert. <laughs> so it's great. It's a movie from 1970. Um, so what the animal's doing, in fact, that's a fixed action pattern. You're giving it something that, it's, it's got a releasing stimulus, which is something soft, and, and, and like a, the belly of the mother cat, and it pushes on it. It's looking for a nipple. That's what it's doing. Um, we don't let, like I said, we don't let cats become adults typically. We feed them. They don't have to develop into adults. They don't ever have to learn to hunt. So, and the sequence is rigid. Once the cat stops doing it, you, you get a cat. You give it a pillow. There are cats that'll just do that all day. Yeah, they're just gonna keep doing that. That's a pretty simple fixed action pattern. Pretty simple behavior. Now, if we look at dust bathing and Burmese red jungle fowl, which are really the ancestor of modern day chickens. Um, 
we have behavior where what these birds do is they take a bath in dirt, in dust. And you're thinking, take a bath in dust? Well, not all animals bathe in, not all birds bathe in water. Right? Some bathe in dust. What they do is they get, they get themselves covered in dust and they shake it off. And the dust clumps to like oil on the feathers. And when they shake it off, it just all comes off and cleans them. Okay. So it says some birds dust in the water. Bathe in water, some birds bathe in dust. So the first thing the animal does is it fluffs up dust. So you can see what it's doing here. Okay? Front end. It's moving around a lot to get some dust in the air. Because all it is is dust in the wind. <laughs> wow, references to songs from 1970. <laughs> that's, that's interesting. Next, it does a bill scratch. See what it's doing now? It's scratching the ground with its, with its bill. This gets dust off onto the neck. So the first thing it did is it got dust onto its body down here. Now it's getting it here. Okay? And now the animal starts scratching all over the place, and it kind of builds up almost a cloud. You can't really this well, the picture's done on purpose so you can see it. But what the animal will do, and I've seen these birds dusted because I don't see these doing work on this stuff, they'll actually build up almost like a like a cloud of dust. We used to, the person who did this work that I know, uh, he'd have to do it in sawdust. And if you watch them, it would be like it'd be like a whole bunch of sawdust in the air, kind of like when your dad was cutting wood in the basement when you were a kid. Maybe that was just me. It's actually a really complex behavior. Um, it lasts about 45 minutes, half an hour to 45 minutes. What happens is we've got the behavior here, an internal clock tells the animal to dust bathe. Having dust around, I'll talk about this next time, but having dust around like this might lead to dust bathing. And the dust bathing system has the bill rank, a scratch, the vertical wing shake, and the body shake. So they actually do all these different behaviors. They'll do all these different behaviors. They're all components of the dust bathing behavior system. But once the animal starts desiccating, it's going to do all of these things. Is it right. the same order all the time? Yeah. And once they start doing it, they do the little stop. I mean, unless you start chasing them. Right? Hey, chicken, I'm having a bath. <laughs> not like that. But they do it all the same way all the time. All right, we'll continue talking about this on Monday. Thanks, guys.
podcast is released under a Creative Commons copyright share like 2.5 Canada. Uh, feel free to redistribute the information as you see fit, but please don't make any money out of it. And if you do, you got to tell me because I'm reserving that right. Giving up all the other ones, including uh, mash it up any way you want, okay? Um, also, of course, give me attribution. If you want to get a hold of me, my email address is dave.broadbeck, B-R-O-D-B-E-C-K, at algomau.ca. My website is people.auc.ca slash broadbeck slash blog. Uh, most of the music, uh, all the music's pod safe, and most of it comes from GarageBand.com or the Podsafe Music Network. See you next time.